those he foreknew, to become conformed. What does that mean? It means he foreknew that you were going to make a choice for him. And knowing that you were going to make that choice, he said, okay, then I have a destination for you. I have a plan for you. I'm going to plan ahead of time what's going to happen for you based on the fact that I know you're going to make the choice that you're going to make that you haven't yet made. Are you following? (laughs) It's actually not that complicated. (laughs) Paul is just saying that God knew beforehand who would choose him. That those same people, he would then pre-plan, prepare, predestine to be conformed to the very image of Jesus. Now that, that conforming process is amazing and it's the sozo of scripture that Greek word sozo which is the word for salvation which indicates or implies an ongoing salvation a process not just an occurrence and that's important for us yes I'm a saved person but I'm also a continually saved person I am growing in that salvation if Jesus were to come today I would be saved if he were to come 10 years ago I would be saved however the difference between me and my Christian life today and 10 years ago is vast because over 10 years God has continued to grow me in that salvation he's conforming me to the image of Jesus why would he do that? well one very powerful reason and Paul says it right here in Romans 8.29 he says that we would be predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren now again that's another thing that throws people so Jesus would be the firstborn so he's created? no it's not what Paul's saying he'd be the firstborn later it would say in scripture from among the dead firstborn he would be the one to die and be raised back to life never to die again Jesus would be the first one to do that Lazarus died and was raised back to life but he died again Jairus' daughter the synagogue leader's daughter died and Jesus raised her back to life but she would die again Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead first one to die and be resurrected never to die again and then Paul says so that he would be firstborn among many brethren in other words we may die but we will be raised never to die again or we might not die at all we might just go up That's what I'm shooting for. You guys know that. I'm planning for that. The law of God, in other words, now serves to conform you and I to the image of Jesus. To make us more like Him. To perfect us. As I prayed earlier, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The finisher of our faith. The one working on our faith. And if ever you're discouraged about where you're at in your faith, understand that the perfecter is at work. He's working with you. He's working on you. It's kind of like Hayden's new jeans. Hayden's new jeans. We got Hayden a new pair of jeans. Now, Hayden's my youngest. He's eight years old. We got him this little pair of jeans because his other pants weren't fitting anymore. And he put them on. And this was before school, just this last week. And he was standing right there with, with these jeans, and they were huge on him. I mean, they were just at the very bottom of his hips, barely standing up, and he's pulling them up. He's going, Dad, these are uncomfortable. I can't wear these. I don't like these. And I said, well, Hayden, they're the only clean jeans you've got today, son. So this is what you've got to wear. Do you need a belt? No, it's okay. And he walked out the door, you know, holding them up like this. And he went to school. And by the time he got home, he had grown into his jeans. It was a miracle. He walked in the door and I said, do you want to change your pants and put on something that fits better? And he goes, nope, love them, Dad. These are great. See, at school, all his friends told him how cool it was to have the big baggy jeans hanging down low. So now he has grown into his jeans. They fit just right. They're the way he wants them to fit. And it's an analogy that I, I kind of saw Hayden and, and thought about. This is like growing into grace. 
God gives us grace like Hayden's jeans and we put them on. And when we first wear grace, it's like, man, this doesn't fit. I don't deserve this. It's not right for me. I, I don't conform to this. This is too big for me. God's grace is too big. But we begin to wear it. And as we wear grace, as we embrace grace, it starts to feel right. It starts to look good on us. We start to learn how to wear it well. It's learning how to wear righteousness. I am not a righteous person, as many of you can testify. And none of you are righteous in and of yourselves either. But gang, we are learning how to wear righteousness. There are those beautiful moments in the day where we do something completely other. Where we do something absolutely Jesus for someone else. And in those brief moments, we are being conformed. And then, of course, we go back to our tripping and stumbling and our sinning. And and we're never going to get it perfectly right until Jesus perfects us. But don't miss that we are in that process of growing into grace. Of embracing it. Of learning to walk in righteousness and learning to wear the righteousness that God already gives us. That God says is on you. God looks at you and says they fit great. And we're learning how to wear that. But, while the law of God can direct us toward that conforming in Jesus, that look on His face, and drive us into the embrace of grace, we need to remember something and understand this as we approach the law. While I desire to receive this conformity to the image of Jesus, I know I will never achieve it. Look again at Romans 8.30. Paul writes and he says, And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. And I am not even in that sentence. Except that I'm being referred to by He, by Him. Jesus is the one at work. Jesus is the one doing it. Embrace the purity of Christ, but do so with the humility of Christ. Philippians 2.5 tells us, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So the law of God, it is valuable to us. And we'll continue to plow through it on Sundays, one command at a time. And I want to challenge you to know the commands. This Sunday, flipping open now, go back to Exodus chapter 21. Actually, look at Exodus chapter 20. This Sunday, Exodus 20 verse 3 will be our scripture. I challenge you to memorize it between now and Sunday. It's pretty easy. You shall have no other gods before me. Repeat after me. You shall have no other gods before me. Very Okay, good. We'll just do it together. Let's do it one more time on the count of three. One, two, three. You shall have no other gods before me. See, you already know it. This is why Wednesday night's great. You guys get ahead of the Sunday morning crowd. And a little more righteous, I might add. No, I'm kidding. The law of Moses. Now, Exodus 21. The law of Moses is different. The law of Moses is unique to the law of God. They are both from God. They are both given to Israel. But as I said, the law of God is for all people of all time. But the law of Moses is for Israel in a very specific way. It served to direct Israel civically, religiously, ceremonially, and socially. You will see things in this law that are not intended for all people of all time. They don't even apply to all people in all time like the Ten Commands do. However, we're still going to study them. And why will we do that? Because in these ordinances, not only will we learn more of the heart of God, but we will also see 
more of the person of Jesus. And you're going to see something very powerful in chapter 21 tonight that, that shows this beautifully. So fasten your Bible belts and let's get started. Verse 1, chapter 21. Now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. Now, it's a clear difference. God is now turning the corner and saying, okay, we've done the Ten Commandments. I've given you the law, the broad law, the generic law for everybody, the one that's valuable for everyone. Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. The word ordinance there is the Hebrew word mishpat, which is exactly how it sounds. M-I-S-H-P-A-T, mishpat. It means judgments or, even better yet, rights. What we're stepping into here in 21, 22, and 23 of the book of Exodus is the Bill of Rights. This is Israel's Bill of Rights. This is how they're to treat each other. This is how things are supposed to be dealt with. This is their Bill of Rights. Mishpat also uh, is, is referred to as the Mishpatim. Jews will refer to the Law of Moses in that way. The Mishpatim, which again is the equivalent of our Bill of Rights. It's that which seeks to protect and set forth the rights and boundaries for the people. And what's fascinating is where it starts out. In the perfect place. The place of highest honor, the place of greatest glory, slaves. It starts with slaves and their rights. Verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. Slavery. The selling of man into servitude. And here we have a primary example of the misapplication of something intended for Israel that was drawn out over the centuries and used in other places, namely America in the 1800s. Slavery. Well, it says right here in the Bible that uh, the Hebrews had slaves. And God gave specific rules for how to deal with slaves. Therefore, slavery is okay. Slavery is it's at least initiated by God, if not regulated. That's the thing to remember here, gang. God is not initiating slavery. This had already been going on for a long time in Hebrew culture. This idea of slaves. You remember Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. Slavery was something that was known. It was understood by the people. Sometimes... If a person got into tremendous debt and couldn't pay off his debts, he would become a slave to try and pay off the debt. That works sometimes. Other people were born into slavery. But slavery was something that was already going on in Israel at the time God gave this law. Well, why didn't God just wipe it out? Because God was working with an infancy here. And something that also you would do well to understand is God has used all of history to explain himself to us. To bring humanity from point A all the way to point Z, which will be when we're finally caught up. And in that time, God makes steps toward helping humanity to understand his nature and his character. And so he didn't, right off the bat, slam them with certain things. He worked with what he had to work with. With the Hebrew people. And so he's not initiating slavery here, but he is regulating it. Which is bizarre. Unheard of in culture in that day. For the first time, slaves had rights. For the first time, God said, okay, if you, if you have a Hebrew slave, he's yours for six years. But in the seventh year, he's free. This will be incredibly valuable to the Hebrews who just came out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And God's saying, maximum, we're going to put term limits on slavery here. It's not going to be any longer than six years. In the seventh, you'll go free. That's interesting, and we'll come back to that thought. 
But that, that heart of freedom that God has for His people. Freedom in the seventh year. Let me ask you this. Again, is, is God condoning slavery? And the answer is no more than Jesus was condoning divorce. Flip over to Matthew chapter 19. Keep your finger in Exodus 21. Matthew 19. Matthew 19 in verse 1. Give you a second to flip there. Matthew 19.1 tells us the following. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees excuse me, came to Jesus testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now they weren't concerned about divorce. They were just concerned about tripping up Jesus. That's all they were trying to do. And so he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, you've heard this verse, let no man separate. And they said to him, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Aha, we got you here, Jesus. And he said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Gang, is Jesus condoning divorce here? No. But he acknowledges that which is of humanity and it grieves his heart. It's the hardness of man's heart that causes these problems. It's the sin in us that causes these problems. And so God, in the Mosaic Law, Jesus tells us, gave them the option of divorce, gave them the certificate of divorce, because he knew their hearts were hard. Not because he thought it was a good idea. And in the same way, many of the laws, flip on back to Exodus 21, that we will come across, God is setting in place to give them at least some sense of boundaries, to start pulling them into an understanding of who He was, of what He was truly about. They would be taken much further over the years by God and by His Spirit. He would teach them many things, and finally, He would come as God in the flesh, Jesus, to show us in the most graphic way possible what He was truly about. So for now, as He begins to lay these laws out he's doing so so that they can begin to see his heart and understand who God is and what he is about so understand that again many of these ordinances are simply regulation not initiation by God so what does he do with the slaves again he expresses with them the heart of freedom every seventh year the slave goes free which by the way that idea goes hand in hand with the Sabbath the Sabbath the day of rest on the seventh day. Every seventh year, the slaves were to go free. Verse 4. goes on and says, If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, but he shall go out alone or by himself. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or, or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. What's this all about? God is giving an option of servitude by choice. 
A slave is, is bought or purchased or comes into the uh, service of a master. And the master gives the slave a wife. He, he falls in love. He, he now is married to the wife. They have children together. He has a family now. And the seventh year comes along and he's free to go. Should he want to go? But the wife who the master gave to him still belongs to the master. So do the kids. So what is he going to do? He has a choice to make. And if the slave says, as the scriptures just told us, I love the situation I'm in here. I want to be with my wife, my children. I don't want to leave my master. I want to stay here. Then there was a specific sign that they gave. They would take him to the doorpost and drive a spike, a small spike, through their ear, called an awl. And the piercing in their ear was that sign. And it was a badge of honor. It would have been a badge of honor for the master. It would have been a badge of honor for the slave himself. How about the wife and kids? To see that pierced ear and to know that he gave up his freedom because he would rather be with them. It's also here not just an ordinance. It is the perfect picture of Jesus. It's a great picture of him. Philippians chapter 2 verse 6. Again, we read this verse a moment ago. Let me read it to you in the King James Version. I love the way it translates here. And this, by the way, is about the most accurate it gets on this particular verse. Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal to God. In other words, he's not taking anything away from God to actually be equal with God. But, that being the case, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. It was not robbery for Jesus to be considered equal with God. But even though that, that was the case, even though that was the way it was, he took upon him the form of a servant. Isaiah chapter 42. Interesting verse here. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I'm, who I'm upholding, or who I, whom I uphold. This verse, by the way, um, the Bible tells us in later places, this is specifically referring to Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, watch this closely. God in Isaiah chapter 42, he makes this comment. He says, look at my servant in whom my soul delights. Does that sound familiar to you? At Jesus' baptism, what did God say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. My servant in whom my soul delights. My son in whom I am well pleased. And here in Exodus 21, the slave served six years and in the seventh he is free. Well, looking at biblical numerology, six is always the number of a man. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. And Jesus became a man to bring about the completion, the perfect work set to set us free from the law of sin and death. But look again at verse 5. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I love my father. I love my master. Jesus said in John 14, 31, I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. I want to be my Father's servant. Jesus said. But he also loves his wife. I love my wife. 
Ephesians 5.21 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And down in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, Paul says, I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He loves his master. He loves the father. He loves his wife. He also loves his children. John 1 verse 12 says, As many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so for love's sake, because he loves his father, because he loves his wife, because he loves his children, Jesus entered into servitude. Jesus entered into servitude. And how again did one enter into this place of indentured servitude? He was pierced. He was pierced by a spike into the doorpost. In the same way, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. And listen to this one. Psalm chapter 40, a messianic psalm. Verse 6 says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. We've talked about that verse before. It's Jesus. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Hebrews chapter 10 quotes that and refers to it as Jesus. Says this is Jesus speaking. Tells us plainly that Jesus said these words himself. But what's interesting is in verse 6 of Psalm 40. He says, my ears you have opened. The word opened there is literally pierced. My ears you have pierced. My ears you have digged in the King James. Or dug. You have created a hole in my ear. This messianic psalm describing Jesus harkens back to this first law in the ordinances that God would give Israel. A law for a slave. A law for a slave who says, I will be an indentured servant for life. And that indentured servant is a picture of, in the very first law here, Jesus. We start right out looking at the Lord. He was pierced in complete submission to the Father that his plan might be accomplished. By the way, for Israel, what happened at the doorpost in Israel's recent memory? The Passover. The blood. Take them to the doorpost, God says. I mean, when you read this, if you're not thinking about it in context of how God dealt with Israel and the pictures that he's painting, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would you have to have a guy stick his ear lobe right there on the doorpost and drive a spike into that? It doesn't make any sense. But to the Jewish mind, that doorpost said something. What would happen when the ear is is pierced, spiked through into the doorpost? What would get on the doorpost? Blood would. Blood. And the last time the Jews saw blood on the doorpost, it was the blood of the Passover lamb who you and I know to be Jesus. Aren't these pictures incredible? I mean, when you see these things, do you do what I do? Do you just go, oh? Well, I said this moments moments ago, but think about this even more now. How do you think the wife and the children felt about their dad, about their husband, about this slave who says, rather than have my freedom, I will live forever a servant. And translate that into how we feel about Jesus, who though he was God, became a servant, emptied himself, did what he did for us. Now you may say, well, Rick, there's one slight problem with this scenario of of this servant being an example of Jesus. I don't like this whole indentured idea because didn't Jesus resurrect and isn't he now standing seated at the the right hand of the Father? 
Is he now in all authority? Hasn't he returned to his greatness? And are you telling me that he is still a servant? Because this servant is an indentured servant. It says he shall serve him permanently. Let me give you an amazing, almost difficult to believe verse. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Jesus is speaking, and listen to what he says. Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve. What did Jesus do? John chapter 13 on the night that He was betrayed. Do you remember what He did for the apostles? He girded Himself to serve. Wrapped Himself around the middle with a towel and began to wash their feet. Acting, taking on the very role, acting out the role of the servant. And here he says, truly I say to you, those who find, who the master will find on alert when he comes, truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table. And listen to this, this is almost unspeakable. And he will come and wait on them. Jesus is saying, for those of you who are looking for me, who are ready to go when I call, who are on the alert I'm going to re-strap on that that waist of servitude and you are going to recline at the table and I am going to serve you scandalous unheard of like Peter I want to say no thanks no Lord no 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 you're not going to serve me I will serve you you're the God I'm just I'm just the messed up guy who somehow got in here I'm not sure how don't serve me don't wash my feet, Peter would say. I, I, I don't deserve this. But don't forget this. Never forget this. The highest place in the kingdom is reserved for the person who serves. It is topsy-turvy, upside down from this world. In this world, the servant is the lowest. We start off with the very first ordinance here being for a slave. And we go, all oh, those poor slaves, let's move on to someone you know, like me who's not a slave. And Jesus says, hey... The highest position there is, is the position of slave. The position of servant. The position of greatest honor is given to the servant. Matthew chapter 20 verse 25, Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Why is it that way in the kingdom? Because with God, the servant is great. With God, the slave is placed on a high pedestal. And even Jesus, we're told at the end of Philippians chapter 2, because of his act of servitude, because he became a slave, God exalted him to the highest place. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. What is that glory? What is the glory that Jesus wears? It's the girding up of a servant. It's the servant's towel. And so again, as we aspire to be conformed to the image of Christ, as Paul wrote in Romans 8.29, don't forget we're aspiring to the high and holy calling of servant, of slave. That, my friends, is when you are at your best for God, when you're serving other people. 
in this world and in the next, it's the best thing you can do. Now, I love this next verse. This is precious. Verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she is not to go free as the male slaves do. (laughs) Isn't that nice? Hannah, you didn't get your homework done, you're out of here. You're sold. You're gone. I'm going to sell you. We don't need you around here. We've got things to pay for. What father in his right mind would sell off his daughter? It was practiced in Israel, unfortunately. Oftentimes, again, for a family in severe financial distress, they would sometimes sell off their daughters, ultimately sell off their sons into servitude. And if you put your son there, God says, and this is where the mercy is, this is where the beauty is, because I believe God is looking at the daughters of Israel with a huge heart. He's making it very hard, very hard for a father to sell a child. If you sell your son, understand this. You put your son into slavery, he's going to be there six years. If you sell your daughter into slavery, she's not going to go free. This is a severe and serious boundary that God is laying out. If you're going to do this to your kids, understand the weight of what you are doing. Part of this is saying that this slavery thing is serious business. And if you draw back into your own, those of you who are parents, your own sense for your kids, it's serious business where we place our children, isn't it? But God goes on. I mean, you may look at this and go, that's so unfair. That's, that's that biblical chauvinism. I mean, that's where we see it right there. But listen now to the father's heart for his daughters. Verse 8. He says, if she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. Let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. The first thing God does is say, if a woman, if a daughter, if one of these little girls of mine does get sold into slavery, she is only only to be sold to a Hebrew. She cannot be sold to another people. She is not to be dumped off. She is to be cared for by my people. And if the person who buys her, treats her unfairly, decides he doesn't want her, then she is to be, number one, redeemed. Redeemed. Her parents need to have the right to bring her home. It's interesting because that's not offered for the son. He has to work six years, and then in the seventh he's freed. The daughter can be redeemed. The second thing he does, look at verse 9. If he designates her for his son... This is interesting. He shall deal with her according to the custom of the daughters. First one was redemption. That's an option for the daughter who sold in slavery. The second is elevation. If you buy a, a girl for a slave, a Hebrew girl, and she's working for you, and your son starts to fall for her, and you start to think, you know, that's not a bad match, then she can become now daughter-in-law, but you no longer treat her as a slave. You elevate her to the position of daughter. Because the slavery is simply a, a position. It's not a character trait. It's a position that she's in. She could be redeemed. She could also be elevated to a daughter-in-law in the family. But if it all falls apart, if it's all a big mess, read on. Verse 10, if he takes to himself another woman, and this could be speaking about the son who's been given the daughter, or it could be speaking about the man who buys the daughter if he takes her for himself. But if he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. In other words, she goes free. 
So, gentlemen, you have three options with a female slave. You can either redeem her if it's not working out. Her family can redeem her. Or second, she can be elevated in position or in the family. Or third, she is to be set free. She is to be given back her freedom. Now, you might read that and go, okay, wait a minute. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food or clothing or her conjugal rights. So that means what? He has two wives now? So God's endorsing polygamy here? God's saying that's all right? No, he's not. He is not endorsing polygamy any more than he was endorsing slavery before. So what's going on here? God is giving clarifications, and there will be more clarifications as his law unfolds. But for now, for now, at this point in Israel's history, God is making something very clear. My daughters are to be taken care of. Even if she goes into slavery, she's to be taken care of. You treat her well. You take care of her. Now daughters in here, listen for a moment. You may at some point in your life have felt as though you were displeasing to some man, a father or a husband. But God here has done all three of these things for you. Consider what God has done for you. He has redeemed you. He has elevated you, ladies. Jesus was scandalous in his treatment of women. The Pharisees looked at that and they said, Well, what is this guy doing? When Jesus met the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and the apostles went into town, they came back and he's talking to a woman. What's going on here, Jesus? He elevated women, redeemed his daughters, elevated them, and gave them the same freedom that he would give his sons. Because that's the heart of God. And we even see it beating way back here in the early days of Israel becoming a nation. God saying, my daughters matter. I will care for my daughters. And so if you have had difficulty in a relationship, any of you ladies, with a man here on earth, remember your father's tenderness with you, that he redeemed you, elevated you, freed you, and a bruised reed he will not break. We're reading on verse 12. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Now, some have said right here, you see capital punishment instituted for Israel. Actually, it wasn't. And a Jew would tell you this, capital punishment was instituted way back in Genesis chapter 6 with the Noahic covenant. Genesis actually chapter 9. That's where capital punishment was instituted. It's a discussion for another time. But here, he's just reiterating that for Israel. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, in other words, an accidental, we're talking manslaughter, then I will appoint you a place to which he can flee. And indeed, accidental killings or manslaughter, even crimes of passion where death was not intended, we will see later on that God designates cities of refuge where a person can flee and be protected. Let me read quickly to you Joshua chapter 20. If you want to flip there, you can, or you can just listen. Joshua chapter 20 gives us the following interesting piece of information beginning in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally, without premeditation, he may flee there, and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. 
He shall flee to one of these cities and stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of the city. And they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, then they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. Amazing. And you got to see this. Verse 6. This is just awesome. Do you understand the picture here? God lays out, and there are several cities throughout Israel that are places of refuge. If someone accidentally killed someone else, maybe a couple of guys are in a fight, and a guy knocks a guy down, and somehow he strikes his head on a rock or whatever, and he's killed, but it was unintentional. It was what we would call manslaughter. Then God says, that person is not deserving of capital punishment. That person needs to be given refuge. And so that person would flee to one of these several cities and he would stay there. Well, how long did he have to stay there? Interesting, listen to this. He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. He runs and he has refuge until the high priest dies. When the high priest dies, it says, Then the manslayer shall return to his own city and to his own house, to the city from which he fled. The person who is guilty of manslaughter has to stay there until the death of the high priest, which is again another beautiful picture of Jesus. Our high priest who died for us to redeem us, to save us from all that we have done from our sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 Therefore since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the Son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Verse 14 Exodus 21.14 However, if a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. Now this is another interesting verse. The reference here is to premeditated murder followed by someone clinging to the altar for sanctuary. And you'll actually see this, as a matter of fact, at the beginning of Solomon's reign. A man by the name of Adonijah. You can read the story in 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 50-51. through 51. Adonijah is fleeing for his life. He has committed murder. He's fleeing for his life and he runs to the altar and grabs onto the horns of the altar seeking sanctuary, seeking protection, calling out, Ali, Ali, oxen free. And what the Lord is saying, even if you are grabbing onto my altar for protection, man, if you kill somebody, you even then will be taken from my altar. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 28 through 32 tells us the same exact thing happens to Joab. Joab will run to the altar and cling to the horns of the altar. And Solomon will command that he is to be taken from the altar and killed a life for a life. They were not protected by this altar. Why would they run and cling to the altar? That's an interesting idea there. They would do it because the altar was the place for forgiveness. It's that place where sins were atoned for. A last-ditch effort, if you will, to run and claim, please forgive me. I, you know, yes, I did this. It was premeditated, but give me forgiveness. But there's an important principle to understand here that with God, atonement is not a game. Redemption is not license for evil. 
We can't say, oh, I did this, but I'm going to run over here, and if I touch the altar, then I'm going to be covered. Oh. What does all this mean? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Peter said the following, he said, Act as free men, and do not use your evil as a covering, or do not use your freedom, your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Because you have come to the altar, because you have come to the cross and been saved, don't use the cross to cover up or hide or as freedom, as license for sin. You are saved by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, but it doesn't give us license to sin. Again, as Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. We've died to sin. How can we live it any longer? And this, by the way, is why Jesus said the following in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. So therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. In other words, don't hide behind the altar. Redemption is not license for sin. It's freedom for forgiveness. We're reading on. Verse 15. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. That's always a fun one to read to teenagers. They they really enjoy that verse. Seriously, if you curse mom or dad, Connor, he who curses his mother or father shall surely be put to death. And it says that if men have a quarrel with one another and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but he remains in bed. Wait a minute, I'm going to come back to that. Let's deal with this put to death thing. Someone strikes his father and mother, they're to be put to death. Someone kidnaps someone, they're to be put to death. If someone curses father or mother, they're to be put to death. And again, God does take the position of parenting seriously. Did you know that there is actually a network for parents in America now called Abused Parents Anonymous? For parents who have suffered abuse from their children. This is where we're at in our country. This is how far we've come. But God says for Israel that striking a parent is cause for death. And he applies the same punishment to cursing a parent. Why would he do that? We're going to get to this in a few weeks on Sunday morning. But some of the most vicious murder happens by mouth. One of the most dangerous weapons we wield in our lives is the tongue. And God says, I will not have it with my people. God sets the bar very high with Israel. He is serious about the respect children should show their parents because he's serious about the family. He's serious about protecting it, keeping it intact. As the family goes, so goes the community. So goes the city. So goes the nation. So goes the world. Satan understands this. If he can undermine the family, he's got us. And so God says, I want my families protected. I don't want cursing going on there. I don't want striking going on there. You know, the most dangerous call for a police officer to go out on is domestic disputes. That's the one, ask any police officer, that they would prefer not to go out on. That, by the way, in domestic dispute calls, is the number one place that policemen get killed. Did you realize that? 
It's not cracking down violent crimes. It's going into someone's home where husband and wife are fighting. That's the place, most often, where a police officer will lose his life. And so God says, not in my families. I will not stand for it. And he is deadly serious. Verse 18, if men have a quarrel, and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside with his staff, And then he who struck him, well, he shall not go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until he is completely healed. If a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod and he dies at his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken for he is his property. Now, that sounds a little harsh, but maybe we could apply this to us at work. You've been bruised a little bit at work? You've taken it across the chin a couple times at work? Hey, if you got up the next morning, move on. Okay. Verse 21, If, however, he survives a day or two, no vengeance shall be taken, for he is his property. If men struggle with each other and strike a woman, this is interesting, with child, so that she gives birth prematurely, Yet there is no injury. He shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him and he shall pay as the judges decide. Now this is not, I don't believe, talking about specifically a woman who gets struck in a dispute and she has the baby dies. Okay, We're not talking about a miscarriage. We're talking about that if there is a premature birth and the baby's all right and there's no injury, says, then the man shall be fined the woman's husband may demand of him whatever the fine is and he shall pay as the judges decide. But reading on he says, If there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty, and watch this, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And there it is. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, life for a life. And that is how God set up the ordinances for Israel. For Israel. This is the law of Moses, the ordinances given. Not the law of God and the Ten Commandments, but to Israel he said, it's going to be quid pro quo, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And in the context of that, now thinking about, again, the woman... God is clearly elevating the importance of a pregnant woman and the life that she is carrying. It mattered enough that even back then, God inserts this ordinance. I want my daughters protected. I want the child inside my daughters protected. Therefore, there is punishment if for some reason, if for any reason, she is harmed. In the law of Moses, God sets out to create rights and boundaries. Now, remember this. With Jesus, the possibilities are without boundary. Let's flip over to Matthew chapter 5. We'll end there tonight. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. While you're flipping there, let me say this. Hearing these words again, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. God is making something very clear here early on in the ordinances. He is making clear not only His justice, but also His mercy. I believe God is revealing to us, showing us more again a picture of His mercy. How do you get that? Well, because he's putting limitations on it. 
He doesn't say if, if someone loses an eye, and you get to take two. He doesn't say for one life lost that you get to take two. He doesn't say, hey, everyone who loses a tooth, you get to knock out the guys, all the guys' teeth. Or, or if someone loses a hand, man, you get to take both of them. He says, no, it's eye for eye. He limits it. He says there will be punishment, and here are the punishments, but there are limitations to that. Even for the criminal, even for the person who inflicts harm on others, there is a limit. We're not just going to go hog wild in punishing people. There is also mercy along with the standard of justice. One eye for one eye. One burn for one burn. One wound for one wound. And so God regulates recompense. He limits what's going on here. Now, Matthew chapter 5, what did Jesus do with this? Verse 38 tells us he took it even further than God did. Talk about mercy. He said, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt... Okay, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Well, you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then he caps it all off with these wonderful words, Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. God regulates human behavior in the Mosaic Law. Jesus instigates godly behavior in the New Law. God starts off, as we said before, with Israel early on, trying to shape them, trying to form them, giving them boundaries, starting to pull them in, starting to rope in this whole idea of righteousness. And they are so far away from it when he begins that he starts with the little things. Let me at least tell you how to treat slaves the right way. If you're going to be selling, here's a right way to, here's a, a good way to do this so that there's protection. If someone's hurt, here's the way you respond. Starting to bring law, starting to bring order into this society for the first time in a world that up to that time was dominated by paganism. But all these many years later, 1,500 years later, Jesus comes along and he pushes it right off the edge. He says, okay, God was regulating your behavior, Israel. Now I want to instigate godly behavior, godliness. And godliness means taking the law and going way beyond where the law was ever given. Here are the boundaries of the law. If that's where the boundaries set up, you step back even further in your attempt and your desire to be righteous. And he caps it again by saying, you're to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And I think, how in the world can I do that? I'm not perfect. And it doesn't matter how hard I try, I still find myself falling flat on my face. Ten years ago, I was here. And and I have grown so much. But I can just as easily today lose my temper as I could ten years ago. And in that moment, find myself going... Am I never going to grow up? 
Am I never going to grow into this righteousness? Are these jeans ever going to fit? Will I ever wear this grace the right way? Jesus says, oh, I am doing that in you. I'm doing it in you. And if you want to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, the answer to that, as long as we're here, as long as we're in this place, is tuck the Word of God away in your heart, along with the Spirit of God who already resides there, and you will find that you are slowly but surely being transformed, being conformed into the image of Jesus. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And isn't that what we want? Father, that is what I desire more than anything else. Lord, to be conformed to the image of Your Son, Jesus. To act the way that He acted. To think like He thought. To love the way that He loved as He walked on this earth. To have the graciousness toward people. Not to hold grudges, Lord. Not to allow bitterness to grow in my heart. To be able to forgive, Father, even the way Jesus forgave from the very cross that He died on. To be like Him. And we see traces, Lord, of Jesus all throughout this passage we just studied. In these ordinances, in these boundaries, these fences, these rules and regulations that You began to set up for Israel, we see Jesus. Father, as we study these things, conform us. Make us like Him. Help us in our treatment of others to be like Him. Thank You for the promise of Your Spirit and the wonder of Your Word that together serves to grow us in that direction. And we love You, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.